Good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? So, step number one of my sermon is complete. I walked this out here, and I kept thinking in my head, just don't trip, don't trip, don't trip. <laughs> so, step one down, now we're going to move on, okay? So, I'm so, so excited to be here with y'all today. So, we, me and my family just got back from a trip to the mountains, and man, I just, my, my heart is full from the time I got to see my family and being up there in the mountains just in, it's truly, truly God's country, and it's just Amazing. So I'm excited to be here with y'all today. As Cruz just told y'all, we've been in the series, What If, right? So we've been asking and wrestling with these questions, what if? So today I've been tasked with going through what if there is a final judgment? So I'm pretty sure everybody in this room, right, would say, us as followers of believers, us as followers of Jesus, right, we definitely believe there will be a future judgment, right? But, but here's what I want to wrestle with today. We're going to go through that, but I also want to wrestle with, but what does that mean for each of you and me in the present? So before we get into it today, I'm going to say a, a word of prayer, and then, and then we're going to jump right into it, okay? So Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time that I had to spend with you, Father, as I, as I wrestled through your word and, and my time with you, Father, as I, as I prepare for this, Father. I Thank you for for the fruits of that time together, Father. I pray that you would just use me, speak through me, let your spirit be in this place and just hear. And I pray that that everyone would just be able to experience the same fruits that that I experienced as I wrestled with your word and and, and wrestled with my time with you preparing for this, Father. I thank you for, for the honor and opportunity that I have to be able to be up here and just participate and share with everyone here today, uh, just, just the good news that, that you have for them and, and for me as well, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. So, over the last few weeks, like I said, we have been in the series entitled, What If? And we've been exploring these questions such as, what if Jesus is the only way to heaven? What if the devil is real? And what if there is a heaven? And so today, like I've already alluded to, we will be exploring this idea of what if there is a final judgment. We will ask this question, we'll say, what if there is a final judgment? And hopefully, through exploring through many biblical passages today, you will come to believe, just like I have, that the Bible clearly teaches that there will be a final judgment. Then once we reach that biblical conclusion on proof and a final judgment, we will wrestle with the implications on what this means for myself and you all in the present, right here today and going forward. So here's the thing, though. I'm not here to cast any doubt in any of your minds, whether you're in or whether you're out when it comes to final judgment. That's, that's not my hope. My hope today is that each and every person in this room leaves here today knowing that Jesus has graciously, graciously provided us with salvation through his life death, and resurrection. However, here's the however. There's a big caveat with this. I also wish to encourage you all that because of that gracious gift, we now have work to do in the present. <clears throat> so if you, have, if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be exploring quite a few biblical passages. So let's get that ready. Um, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 20. Um, only thing I can hear right now is, is my lovely wife's voice in my head saying, give people time to turn there. 
So if you have your Bibles, <laughs> Revelation chapter 20, we're going to start reading in, uh, in, in ver verse 11. Now, long pause. Okay. Chapter 20 of Revelation, starting in verse 11, and this is John writing, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. So this passage right here, it comes right before Revelation 21 and 22, where we have the new heavens and the new earth and the restoration of God's beautiful and created world. And what did we just read in these verses? In Revelation 20, 11 through 13, what does it say? It says that each and every person, every single one of us made in the image of God, we will be judged. The question I have is, is what will we be judged by? So for the next text, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 16. And uh, as you're turning there, just a little bit of the context in Matthew chapter 16 that I'm going to lead up to. So in Matthew chapter 16, we have Peter that has just made his great declaration. He said that Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the King the only problem is, right after he says this, he goes on and Jesus calls him Satan because it's inconceivable for Peter at this time that the Messiah, his king, who, just, who, just, who he just proclaimed, must die in order to rise to his glory. So with that context in mind, that's when we'll read in, in Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. So it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, the whole entire world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So, and then, so this was Matthew speaking, and then Paul actually reiterates Matthew's point in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or whether bad. So God will indeed judge all of us one day in the future. So the question becomes, what is the impact on my present circumstances? So the verses we just read and explored, we read in Revelation and Matthew and 2 Corinthians, they all have two things in common. So number one, all three of them say that we will indeed one day be judged and number two they say this judgment we will be judged according to what we have done by our deeds while here on this earth in the body 
Recapping, Revelation 20:13, it says, Each person will be judged according to what they have done. Matthew 16, 27, each person rewarded for what they have done. 2 Corinthians 5:10, each person will receive what they are due according to what they did, whether good or bad. So to me, what I see in Scripture, it makes it rather clear, right, that what we do here on earth when it comes to that final judgment day, what we do, whether good or bad, those things matter to God. Look, this right here, baptism, is, is, is an amazing thing. Everybody needs to be baptized. This right here alone, though, this does not save us according to what we just read in the previous passages. Our baptism... That right there is only the beginning of the true life we are meant to live. Our baptism into Christ is the beginning of becoming a new creation in Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Our old life is supposed to be buried at our baptism our old self buried so that our true life, the life that God meant us to live through God's grace can begin and we can start doing the good works that God created us to do. So for me, anyone who's, who's ever been around me, talked to me, I, I absolutely love the Apostle John. He is one of my favorite biblical authors. And honestly, if I ever got the chance to meet any person from the Bible, obviously set Jesus aside, right? I think we would all say we would like to meet Jesus. But John would be the one for me. Especially for me, I love John's telling of Jesus and his ministry and his gospel. And I love the way that his gospel begins with these just such beautiful words to me. And he says, in the beginning was the word. And this is John hearkening back all the way to the beginning in Genesis. Genesis 1. Remember how Genesis 1 starts? In the beginning, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So this passage right here, as well as many others, is where we get the whole idea of the Trinity from. We see that Jesus... The word that John's talking about here was not only with God, but that he actually is God. Let's go back to what he says. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So not only was Jesus with God, but he also is God. So while I'm not going to get too deep into the whole Trinity and Trinitarian stuff here today, I think a basic understanding of the Trinity, though, is paramount towards our understanding of God's love for us as well as why we should love others. So what do we find in the Trinity? In the Trinity, we find this idea of God existing in an eternal relationship with himself. This right here alone has to change our view of the world and why God made it. So theologian uh, Kevin DeYoung says this about the Trinity. He says, with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
Whoever, whoever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. I'm going to read that one more time. With a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create us in order for him to be loved, but rather he created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who ever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. So let's think about what, what DeYoung just said there, and let's think about um, what he's saying about the Trinity and God's overflow of perfect love, and, and let's, let's piggyback that on to, to with what Paul says in Ephesians and think about it in light of that. So Paul in Ephesians 2 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift. It is a gift to us from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we see here, it is out of that same abundant overflow of love that God not only created us, but he also saved us. It is because of the overflow of grace given to us that our very own lives should overflow with the good works that God created for us and prepared for us in advance. Think about that. Probably all the way, possibly even all the way back in creation, God already prepared these things for us to do as children of God. Here's the thing, though. It is not these works that save us. Jesus did that. Paul makes it extremely clear, though. Jesus saved us to do good works just as he did. And it is by these works that he prepared for us, whether good or bad, that we will be judged on. Jesus did not take up his cross to die a gruesome death for us, for us to just sit on our hands and do nothing. So at the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death through self-sacrificial love. And so if he did that, why would he expect anything less from us? If he did that for us, then that's the same thing he expects from us. Simply having that faith in Jesus is not enough to save us come judgment day. So therefore, faith or believing alone will not save us come judgment day. <clears throat> Let's turn to James chapter 2. And starting in verse 14, we'll read together. So James 2, verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Did y'all hear what James said there? What, what was James's question? Is there any way possible for us to have so much faith that that faith alone can save us. So let's continue reading. Verse 15, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. 
Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God. That's, that's great in believing that. But what does he say here? Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in fear. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead as well. So James makes it clear here, just as our very own bodies, our very own bodies that we're walking around in, we're breathing with, our bodies without the indwelling, though, of God's life animating spirit is truly dead. So too, says James here, is faith without deeds. Faith and deeds are therefore two sides of the exact same coin. They are inseparable for those who claim to know Jesus. Remember, we are saved by grace through faith, but the faith that saves must not remain alone. Rather, saving faith is meant to transform us and this transformation affects our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, our actions. It affects our whole entire life. How foolish would it be for us to think that we could be saved by such righteous deeds, as imperfect as they are? However, it might be even more foolish to think that we could be saved without them. So here's the question. Is it even possible to live a life full of good works? Is that even possible to do? I know that it's hard, but let me give you all a hint. I think there's someone or something that might be able to help with that. And I think it's the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's turn to Romans 8 and read uh, Romans 8, 1 through 11 together. All right, so Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son and the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, 
But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And in the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. So did y'all hear what Paul said there? Jesus came to this earth the first time, right? Can we agree on that? But guess what, though? He left us, but he didn't leave us empty-handed. Paul makes it plain here that he left the Holy Spirit for us as a gift. John reiterates this point in John 14, 15 through 17, where he says, and this is Jesus talking, and he's telling his disciples, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives within you and will be in you. That advocate that John is talking about here is the same Holy Spirit that that Paul is talking about in Romans and he lives inside of each and every one of us that belongs to Jesus. There is one thing that I'm certain about. If that Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about here and Jesus is talking about in John's gospel, if that same Holy Spirit has the power to make Jesus walk out of the tomb, I guarantee you that same Holy Spirit has the power to help us do good works and do good deeds. And by doing that, those works should always be pointing and glorifying the Father. So in closing today, I wanted to uh, share a story with y'all. And th- this story took place in, uh, around 250 A.D. within the Roman Empire. So this is some roughly 220 years after Jesus. So during this time in 250 A.D., a catastrophic plague has hit the Roman Empire. And at the plague's height, more than 1,000 people are dying daily just within the city of Rome itself. That's not even counting all the outskirts of Rome and all the other uh, land that Rome occupied. Over 1,000 per day just in the city of Rome are dying. The fatality rate was so high that some some cities even fell into complete ruin and entire military campaigns had to be stopped. Dionysius, who was a bishop of Alexandria at the time, had this to say about the plague. He said, out of the blue came this disease, a thing more terrifying, a terror more frightful than any disaster ever recorded. This plague, though, it wasn't specific on who it affected. This plague, it it afflicted Christians and it afflicted non-Christians alike. However, here's the thing, though. The response 
from these two groups, the pagans and the Christians, they were drastically different. So Dionysius once again reported that the pagans, at the very onset of this disease, they pushed the sufferers away, so these would be the people afflicted with the plague, and fled from even their closest friends and family. Think about that. Think about a plague that these people think were so bad that, that the, their very loved ones who lived in their same household, they're literally pushing them away to try to flee the plague. They even took the people that were diseased and threw them into the streets before they were even dead. Here's the thing, though. The Christian response was much different. During this dreadful time, bishops like Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, used their pulpits to answer difficult questions that the Christians had about why this was happening. They used their pulpits to provide comfort and hope to the people. They preached on things such as God's sovereignty, the suffering of Jesus, to let them know that they were not alone in their suffering, the last judgment and the resurrection of the dead. Here's the thing, though. The Christian faith did more than simply give these people words of comfort. It made a practical difference in the lives of these people. It's as if their faith had found a perfect match with their deeds. The Christians faced this plague with courage by nursing the sick and burying the dead. They believed that because God loved them, that same overflow and abundance that we talked about earlier, they believed that because of this, as undeserving as they felt like they were, they saw it as their duty that they love others just as God so graciously loved them. These Christians demonstrated that same self-sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross for them. A number of these caretakers that were taking care of these people that were Christians, they ended up taking the death of the sea and the, the disease among themselves while the sick they were nursing would recover back to full health. So these Christians, it was, it was as if they were pulling the death out of the ones they were caretaking and taking on themselves and in their place they were dying so that the people they could take care of would live. The most shocking irony of all though throughout the whole plague was the fact that Christians, even though they were more willing to be exposed, they weren't fleeing, were actually the ones surviving this plague at a much higher rate than the pagans who were simply trying to flee and avoid it. So the question is, how? So first, they cared for the sick. Such care ensured that a higher percentage of those with a disease would survive. They used basic nursing care, such as sips of broth, cold rags on the forehead, tender back rubs, and changing the bedding, and even had friends come visit them, and that made all the difference. Their deeds strengthened the sick and helped at least some of them to overcome the disease. Second, the Christians who survived became immune and in return proved to be the best caretakers for those who were still inflicted by the disease. So these survivors, instead of just going on back about their day job or whatever they were doing, thought it was their duty, since they were nursed back to health, that they in turn became the best caretakers because that, then they were immune to this very disease that they had been inflicted with. But lastly, and possibly the most important, is these Christians believed in, prayed for, and experienced miracles. The deeds of these Christians, as well as the frequency of miracles they were experiencing, it left a lasting impression on the pagans. The pagans saw these deeds of the Christians and interpreted these miracles 
as evidence that the Christian God was real. Think about that. Did, did y'all hear that? It, it wasn't some sort of well-crafted philosophical argument that convinced these pagans that God was real. It was the evidence that God was real by their deeds and how they took care of other people. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So for these Christians, they were that light on the hill. Their faith in God was evident through their deeds and what they were doing. And I can guarantee you one thing, that through their actions, we see it from the pagan converts. God received glory in this tough situation. So here's the thing. We've talked about this a lot today. We are all going to stand before God one day and be judged. The Bible makes that very, very clear. Here's the thing, though. We are not going to be judged on some one-time decision that we make. There's no secret passcode to get into heaven at judgment. That's not what it's about. Our baptism, like we talked about early, earlier, it is the beginning that is just the beginning of our true life in Christ. In the end, final judgment will be about what we have done in the body after that new life begins. So for us, just as God so graciously gives out of the abundance of his love for us, we are to go out and do likewise. We are to give to others through our deeds out of the abundance that God has so graciously given to us. Here's the thing, though. God doesn't expect us to be able to do these good deeds alone. He sent Jesus to us. And after Jesus left that first time, he left us with a deposit. He deposited something inside of every single one of us. He deposited the Holy Spirit in each one of you and myself. Here's the catch, though about that deposit. Jesus came one time. And the next time he comes, he's coming as judge. He's given us a deposit, and he's going to come back, and he's going to want to know what we did with that deposit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your son, thank you for yourself, Father. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gracious abundance and outpouring love that you give each and every one of us, Father. Thank you for the deposit that you left us with the first time that you came, Father. And I pray that when you come back, Jesus, that we wouldn't be found wanting, that we would take that deposit and we would turn it into good works and good deeds that bring your name, honor, and glory. I pray for each and every person in this room, Father. I pray that we would be that light. I pray we would be that city on the hill that shines light into the darkness, Father. And that light that we shine would be our good deeds that bring you honor 
and glory and ultimately point people to you and not me or anyone else in this room, Father. Thank you, Father. We love you. Amen.